1: is
2: conspira normal all right everybody welcome to conspira normal and uh we are here in the 100 degree heat thankfully we're fan and air conditioning right now but uh we are
3: we are sweltering we're just getting ready for eternity yeah i I guess (laughs)
4: I, I I guess at so. least the company will be pretty much the same. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> suppose, strange realities forever, yeah. Have I, a nice reunion. It's
2: it's going to be a party. That's that, that's for damn sure. <laughs> uh but uh we're here with uh, someone that has been a fan of normal for a long time and a supporter of normal for a long time and actually uh, came to the Strange Realities Conference. In fact, I would say that I think he watched every single presentation at the Strange Realities Conference, and that's Vincent Treewell. And Vincent has a podcast that he does called The Weird Part, and we're going to talk about some of the weird stuff tonight and interesting stuff that he talked about on the on his podcast. So,
4: Vincent, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. And yeah. yes, I did go down to Nashville. And if you watch the saved like feed. It's my big, bald head in the yeah. back, in the middle of just about every presentation. I
3: think at one point we had a few going and we had some kind of like uh, astronomical alignment going on with like your head and Aaron Goliath <laughs> and a few other guys. It was like, like,
2: <laughs> Chris, Chris Sarbino.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're all really shiny too. It was like the beginning of 2001. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Thus spoke Zarathustra
2: was playing at this. <laughs>
4: Uh, Supermoon, yes, yes. (laughs) Oh
2: man, but yeah, so we're happy to have you on, Vincent. And I think what we're going to start with is talk about kind of like how you started doing all this and being into all the weird stuff that you know we talk about all the time.
4: Okay, well, I can tell you it's been a lifelong journey. Um, started when I was really young. Um, I was in love with in search of with leonard nimoy oh yeah from an early age and even as a kid i could totally tell the difference between him and like mr spock and i I liked him better because he was real and when i look back i've watched like every old episode of that show on youtube there's like a hundred and some and i i love what he did back then And I loved it then, I love it now. I wanted to be Leonard Nimoy and just go and like in search of these weird things. And what I really liked about him was he wasn't like a one-note person. He looked into Bigfoot. He looked into UFOs. He looked into ghosts. He looked into demonic possession. But he also looked into like all these other things. He did one on the JFK assassination. He did one on re- at least a couple on reincarnation, on Amelia Earhart, on just everything under the sun. He did one on the Holy Grail that blew my mind even as a child. And that I always wanted to see something like that. And that's now become a thing in today's world decades later. But it it really was kind of, I can't think of another show like that for that time or for a good long time after that. As I got older, then I got into Unsolved Mysteries
0: mm-hmm.
4: and I, I got into that pretty hard. And I kind of developed a, a true crime interest as well, but not not just true crime, like this happened and this, and this happened and then he was convicted, but like where there's unanswered questions, unsolved mm-hmm. crime, right? or crimes that are really weird, um, that have, okay, maybe we know the facts, but those facts are crazy as hell. Yeah. And, you know, what, uh, what was really going on here? Um, and so that, that fed that interest. And then I got a third shift job. And I had literally never heard of this guy before, but (laughs) suddenly I'm, I'm being a security guard walking around all night. And this was not the kind of security where you're like a -a rent-a-cop. This is the kind of security where you're a night watchman. You're basically doing almost nothing, but you got to be awake. You got to, you know, check in and you've got to be there, but you really don't have anything to do. And my life was graced with Art Bell. And I just listened to him every single night because he's on for hours. And that was just straight feeding my soul. Okay. I mean, he had he had guests I really loved. He had guests I despised. And I won't hesitate to mention Daniel Brinkley, but we'll move on. I'll take a follow-up on that if you want. But um, he had good guests, he had bad guests, but he had so many fascinating guests. And he would just talk about these topics and he covered a lot of ground as well. He would cover just everything, and you know that um, fascinated me. And I'd, I'd read so many of the familiar texts from back from, you know, um, Berlitz and the Invisible Horizons and all of the paperback nineteen seventies and eighties
2: mm-hmm. oh, yeah.
4: paranormal material, Some some of which. I may have been uh, disillusioned later in life to find that they might not be the scholarly works I thought they were. (laughs) Sure, (laughs) I think we can all relate to that. Yes, yes.
2: But when you're 12, it's the most amazing thing in the world.
4: Absolutely, and I don't regret that at all. Not a moment reading that was wasted because that was fascinating. And then I got you know I read read Whitley Strieber in high school and. I won't say I suffered a full on panic attack, but it was, it was (laughs) quite, quite frightening and Bud Hopkins and stuff like that. And kind of continued to follow these streams, but also wanted to, you know, keep a track, keep abreast of the more wide variety of strange things, Mm -hmm. not just a couple focused points. And then let me see. I came across quite by accident at a, at a bookstore um, Barnes and Noble still sells this over the counter. As far as I know, a, a British magazine called Fortean times. Yeah. A, and that blew my mind. And I learned about Charles Fort and his whole thing. And they run a hell of a good operation over there. I'm a subscriber just so I can get it on time regularly but it's it's well worth reading every month um and they have the perspective that i try to have and that i really like they're not believers Mm -hmm. but they're not debunkers they're what you'd call a true skeptic you know and they'll call something out and explain no this is just total bs this is why but they'll have a why they explain stuff they don't explain it away you know and, I, I really, and they're willing to be open and hold things in a gray area that eh, could be, could be not. And I like that. And I think that's a sign of an open mind and intellectual strength. If you have to have a cut and dried answer for everything, that's really not the best. You know, that's, that's, that's not productive and it's not good for you. You know, I, I try to get away from that, you know. Then in... I believe it was 05, a movie called The Mothman Prophecies came out. And it's it's a good movie. Stars Richard Gere. It's, you know, I give it two thumbs up, but it has maybe at most 10% of what's in the book. And having seen the book, I, I mean, having seen the movie, I need to get the book. Plus, I was going to buy anything called the Mothman Prophecies. I mean, come on, you know, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you're reeling me in there. And so I got that, and that really blew my mind. And Keel changed my whole way of thinking and looking at this stuff. And he was really, you know, open to all the different levels of weird and types of weirdness, and that maybe they're somehow connected and that percolated in my mind. And then when I started listening a couple of years later, started listening to podcasts, um, I started in the most mainstream podcast possible, which would be uh, this American life on NPR.
3: Yeah.
2: That's pretty mainstream. Yeah.
4: <laughs> it's about as mainstream as it gets. Yes. But they hooked me in with a story called the ghost of Bobby Dunbar. And it was, fascinating no actual ghosts involved but it was about this kid who goes missing and then he's found and a rich family says oh that's our missing son and a poor family says oh that's our missing son and spoiler alert he goes to the rich family but dna may contest that or it may not they made a movie with angela jolie about it angela jolie about it and it's an absolutely fascinating story that has so much more than I'm telling right now, that there may have been more than one kid abducted. There, there's a whole winding story to that. And that got me listening to their podcast. And then they had the podcast Serial, which was Unsolved True Crime, or at least tried to be. And that got me more into podcasts. And I'm like, man, I'd really like to do something like that. I really and but NPR, I mean, they have like thirty people working on that. They have writers, directors, sound engineers, the person speaking isn't even the person who wrote the script. you right. know they have researchers and fact checkers, and I'm like, well, how do you get into this? What am I supposed to burn some CDs and mail them to NPR? I mean you know. so I'm looking around and I'm googling paranormal podcasts, and I came upon. Um, Soraya, um, Soraya Azketh, and where'd the road go? And right about that same time, I came upon, well, I came upon you guys. And I came upon um, Timothy Renner, Strange Familiars. And I realized, you know, people are just doing this. They're not getting like a whole staff and a whole corporation they're just like creating this thing and making it happen. And I said, I'm going, I'm not going to do it today, but I'm going to do it. And, you know, eventually I, it was far more complicated than I expected. And I got a real serving of not knowing what I was getting into, but it has borne a little bit of fruit and starting, starting to work out. And I mean, in no small part, I I couldn't done without you guys. You know. Well, thank you.
3: Appreciate it. Thank
2: you, Vincent. We're glad to have you join the club too. And uh, <laughs> you've also been doing the um, the liner notes, I guess, for uh, where did the road go too. So, we should point that out as well. If you listen to that podcast, Vincent does all
4: that. Which is that's uh, a real honor. And it I listened to it once for fun, and I sit down and really listen to it, and like try to have all the references in there in case people want to look stuff up and i i really i get a kick out of that i love it That's kind of my, my my story and where i showed up well then then i guess we get to the pandemic hits and i see the 2020 strange realities only online and i attend that online and that you know reeled me in further and made connections with a lot of other people and so that's why I had to be had to be in Nashville last year and have to come back this year. You've got on the bus to come to Nashville, too.
3: <laughs> that's awesome.
4: I learned some. I, I do not regret that for one second. Totally do it again in a heartbeat. Um, there were different reasons for that, uh, including I didn't have the driver's license to let you get on a plane yet. So I've got that now. I don't plan on revisiting our fare bus system anytime soon. <laughs> It's it's funny because I I usually travel by train, and that's oh, yeah, yeah. that's wonderful. I love Amtrak, but they don't Amtrak from Milwaukee to Nashville. No, no the closest don't have you're any gonna Amtrak, get
2: is yeah. is
4: Memphis. Yeah, yeah, and so there was no way around just taking the bus. Which I learned that where the bus station and the train station are the same building, like in Milwaukee they're pretty nice. They're actually, it's actually wonderful where it's just the bus station. It's like going to jail. Okay. Yeah.
3: It's, it's very bad.
4: It's really <laughs> bad. And so, yeah, no, nah, I did. I regret it. Hell no. Had a great time. Awesome time. I'm this flying year? in this year.
2: <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're flying in this year. All right, cool. Oh yeah. Uh, so, yeah. We'll be glad to have you come and hang out with us again. Um For sure. I wanted to ask topics. you, you know,
3: out of all these, these, uh, mysteries, is there anything that they, they have in common that really uh, draws you to certain ones and, and what makes them interesting to you?
4: I like the one-offs a lot. I like the, the cryptids that don't fit a, like kind of standard procedure.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, the just absolutely weird ones, especially when they come from someone who has no, no interest in telling the story. In fact, would rather not tell the story because I don't want everybody to think I'm crazy. But that's sometimes I think the, the most credible ones, you know, are things that people see and there's often like, they don't get anything out of it, right. you know? And it's, but they saw something. I absolutely believe they saw something. And though, though that really draws me in that end where there's just these lingering hanging questions that may never be answered, but I can't seem to let go of them. Um, You guys have really spread out a lot and are covering a lot of stuff. I love the one you did on Shakespeare.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. That was a fun one. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And it was like, you know, that's kind of out of the, the, the norm for the paranormal if you want to call it that but it was really fascinating it's kind of that in search of ethos that we're going to look at everything um if i had to pick one that really sticks with me the giant bones the bones of giants
0: Mm -hmm. that have
4: been found in so many places and i know I, i did a an episode on this on on my little podcast there yep and this stuff is documented in the newspapers and this really happened. And, you know, they weren't impossible giant. They weren't 40 foot tall. You know, they weren't something that couldn't exist physically, but they're sometimes eight feet tall. Okay. Which is a very, very large man. they are sometimes, you know, between seven and nine feet tall and that happened. And, there was a disgraceful casualness with which these you know, get these bones out of here so we can build the bank or whatever. But that, that happened and it happened a lot in Wisconsin, but it happened really all over America. And I'm sure they haven't all been dug up. And I'd really like to know who, who are those people? Um, you know, um, they could be, well, they could be many things. And that just, that draws me in and does not let go.
3: Yeah. It's definitely been a source of endless speculation for for a couple hundred years. Do you have any uh, pet theory that that you have about them?
4: I do. (laughs) I, and this is just, this is a pet theory. Yeah. I tend to be a hyper diffusionist, um, A person who believes that there was a lot more contact among the continents before Columbus Mm -hmm. than what is in the historical record or the the archaeological record. And you got to be careful with this because there's so many people trying to infiltrate that field who have a political agenda for today and that really want to find that, well, 10,000 years ago, white people were here. Well, ten thousand years ago it's questionable whether anybody was white, but that's a side story. <laughs> but you know I think that there's they may have been Neanderthals, that there may have been a you know I wouldn't even say lost race because they weren't lost they're They're lost to us because we don't know much of anything that happened before writing in the Middle East a few thousand years ago um, doing archaeology, I had the opportunity when i was quite young to do a, go to an archaeological dig site and participate in it at one of the local colleges and what you're finding isn't i mean it's like doing crime scene forensics on something that happened centuries ago yeah i mean you're not getting an accurate picture but that's the that's the science that's accepted at a, le- a lower level of acceptance, you have the folklore of the people who were living there, but people moved around a lot over thousands of years, and the people living there when the English arrived or the French may not have been the people living there a thousand years earlier
3: yeah, they often told them that they were not the same people
4: yes in fact yes I mean that's yeah, and it's a you know a pretty open secret. And so you have folklore and then way back before that, it's just so much often it's a blank. It's a lot of guesswork. It's a lot of gray area. And I think that there, there could have been an existing population of Neanderthals a lot later than anybody thinks. And that, you know, that might be an explanation. Um, The, weird stories of in the folklore of white haired giants um, of different of the giants and of them being a different type of person to me kind of describes neanderthals though we don't know and we don't even you know it's all very very unformed at this point if it's ever going to be resolved mm-hmm. and I think a lot of stuff is probably at least for the foreseeable future, lost to the ages. Um, A lot of, there's a lot of prehistory and that's, but as far as if I had to guess, I would say uh, Neanderthals lived a lot longer in North America than anybody thinks they did. And just let me add one little thing because I, I found it to be important something as simple as where did the horse come from is hugely contested and debated in legitimate academia. Um, the, the conventional narrative is that while the horse evolved partially in North America, the Amer the native Americans didn't have horses until they stole them from the Spanish. Right. But there's been a number of Native American academics who have rebutted that, and who have you know produced scholarly works um, that show no. We always had horses. We had horses. We've always had horses. Okay. We, we've just we had horses way before the Europeans arrived. Um, our society depended on horses, and. So much of that is, which is not, you know, it's not a million years ago. It's a few hundred years ago, but a lot of that is lost to history. It's, it's very much an open question. And that was something that blew me away when I was looking up some of this stuff for one of the podcasts.
2: Yeah. what I've always heard about that with the horses is that horses were in North America, but when the megafauna died out, they died out then, but it could be possible that they Could have survived and it's just one long continuing i guess there would be a way to do dna studies on horses that we might be able to conclusive find out conclusively i mean probably most horses are european in origin or eurasian rather
4: the ones that are here now yes
2: yeah but there might be some other more you know uh native american horses that are mixed in possibly That's interesting. I I never thought about that
4: before. Until I read this um, professor's piece on it while I was looking up, I think it was while I was was looking up something. (laughs) It escapes me, but anyway, um, something unrelated. And this popped up and like, here's her PhD thesis on why horses were were pre-Columbian in the Americas. And I was like, Pow. Okay. And it's supported by this and this and this. Okay. That's a new one. And this stuff is always kind of opening and linking to other things,
1: mm-hmm. which
4: is, I love that. You know, you get really into studying one thing and you end up, it branches out and branches out and branches out, which is, yeah, it's great. It's just a matter of having the time and organization to, do the kind of research that you want to
3: do, you know? Tell me about it, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is really about uh, archaeology being such a young discipline and they have really had to overcorrect so much for kind of the, the amateur armchair sport of the leisure class that it was uh, when it was, you know, antiquarianism And so I feel like there's room for for both research and fascination with these mysteries that even verges on, you know, spirit quest for the lost civilization and things like that. But, you know, at some level, it's like you just can't expect the archaeological establishment to follow you on your own spirit quest, though. It's kind of like a separate a separate thing, you know? Yes. I fully agree there. Yeah. But a lot of archeologists are just so unsympathetic to people who are really like looking for these big questions and, and the biggest questions, you know, our, our origin and where civilization comes from and all, all, and spiritual things. You know, I think a a lot of the archeological establishment is kind of like poo pooing to those things, which I think are are very important also.
4: Oh, absolutely. Um, Well, there's a real, hard bias in academia and it's against um big discoveries um it's for small incremental discoveries right that don't really matter that much um there is nothing like graham hancock there's nothing he could say that the establishment would find acceptable right it doesn't matter what he found how he backed it up it doesn't they're they're that's not going to get the next grant. Right. That's not going to get the department chair. But it moves hearts. Oh yes, absolutely,
3: and imaginations.
4: Absolutely, work is priceless. Yes, um, there's something also that I think is true uh, that um, Soraya comments on a lot. That when archaeology was young, it was fighting against religion. Was very powerful. Mainstream Christian religion was very powerful. And they didn't want to find anything that would confirm the Bible, hmm. even if it didn't really confirm the Bible, but they didn't want to find floods, didn't want to find giants. They didn't want to find anything that sounds like you might be confirming the Bible. And so the opposite view was taken and a lot of that stuff was edited out. And that that doesn't like neither undercut nor endorse the Bible, but it's just These bones are still here, you know, and this stuff looks like it was caused by a flood and you can have a flood and not, you know, become an Episcopalian. It doesn't, you know, it's not one of those, it's you know, I,
2: I think, you know, I listened to your Tower of Babel episode and just the, just the idea that, you know, I think the flood was many different catastrophes it was a memory that was had of many different catastrophes and one of which probably would have been what destroyed the, what destroyed whatever was around the time of the younger dryas so i i think that there is a i guess would you call it an archetypal memory or a genetic memory yeah. of oh this yes i think of, it's a real thing of a major major catastrophe which we're finding out more and more because of randall carlson and some other people we're finding out more and more that more than likely there was some kind of cataclysm in the very ancient past, but I think it's also i think it's also a memory of other things that happened the black sea uh, uh the Minoan civilization it all just kind of once it was put into the Bible, it was all jumbled up together into yeah. the flood story That's
3: the way that myth works, yeah that that makes a lot of sense.
2: The flood was based off of the epic of Gilgamesh originally, or what was described in the e- epic of Gilgamesh. So
4: and we don't have much of anything before that. You know? no, right. No, we don't. Yes, but that ma- that makes a lot of sense.
2: But each each culture has a flood story. Mm-hmm. They have a creation myth and they have a flood myth. It's pretty universal.
4: Yeah. And we see things change at least for the people right there, drastically all the time. So the, the idea that that would be a driving force and, you know, that something could wipe out whole civilizations does not seem far-fetched to me in the least, you know.
2: And I wonder if the Nephilim, I was thinking about this when I was listening to that episode, I wonder if the Nephilim mythology, first of all, it's kind of a mistranslation or a transliteration, but i do wonder if some of this giant stuff with the nephilim is because these ancient cultures might have dug into some of these mounds or dug into some uh dug into some of these themselves and found these giant skeletons and they had to find a way to explain this so i wonder if some of that is possible because we know that we know that the ancient greeks found dinosaur bones
4: and hence dragons yes yeah right <laughs> And that, that makes yes, I, I think there's also some reverse, you know, we found this thing now. Let's explain it. Oh, I, I think that's absolutely something that happens and has happened throughout history. The Nephilim <laughs> fascinate me. Um I'm not a religious guy, I'm not, you know, trashing anybody else's religion, but I'm I'm pretty agnostic. Um, but I am fascinated by The whole idea and how well that fits in with a lot of the pagan pantheons that these kind of superhero like people that, you know, come from another place, but it's not that far away. I mean, it's like at the top of the mountain or something. Right. Demigods. And yes, demigods. And you've got Thor and Dionysus and Perseus and... all all of these people, and if they're your enemy, then you've got Goliath, you know, and they're mighty, they're mighty men, but they're not impossible. You know what I mean? They're not, you know, 50 feet tall. They're, you know, nine feet tall and have seven fingers on each hand and are really super strong, but just like in a impressive to us level, not in an impossible level. And that seems more like something that could really happen than it does like just, you know, the tenets of a religion. Yeah. That seems like it would be based on actual events.
3: Well, and it happens naturally. I mean, there, there are, you know, very tall people.
4: If Shaq ever gets time travel, let me tell you, <laughs> <laughs> he's going to show up around and around.
3: He's going to be the god king well, of Samaria.
2: And tall is relative too I mean it said that Charlemagne was tall but he think he was about six feet but that was odd in 800 AD as opposed to you know uh, when everybody's probably like you know five feet you know that's gonna be a giant to you but there are some people that think Charlemagne wasn't real but you know if you're gonna buy new chronology yeah then Charlemagne isn't real but anyway that's just a
4: personal soapbox. <laughs> no, I, I I get you. Um, I would, and the flip side, people think Napoleon was short, and yeah, right. he was of average height. He was just a regular person. You know, he he gained a following, but they always portray him as this little guy who like has a chip on his shoulder because he's under a certain height. And no, he was right about average for his time. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things
2: some of that could have been british propaganda i mean you know
4: which is always a factor
2: short little man short little frenchman uh, stuff like that
4: (laughs) yes that's always a factor somebody's writing especially during times of war and you know political conflict every well you know i wonder how short or tall kim kim jong-un really is compared to well, that's unfair because he's the one non-starving person, so it's tough to say. <laughs>
3: <Yes>. <laughs> the other people yes. in
4: his society, yes.
3: So Vincent, the people want to know though, where are the bones?
4: There that gets interesting, doesn't it? Um I wish I had a quick and easy answer. He so said just get down to the library over I mean the museum over at the corner of such and no. Um unfortunately in Wisconsin, they reside in two locations still buried in the sacred mounds that were preserved, which is where they belong. um, And unfortunately just thrown away and scattered in the name of progress because, and this was in one of the newspaper articles that I posted there, that they were digging to make a new sidewalk Mm. and they found these gigantic bones, but they didn't really it wasn't like that big a deal. It's kind of like, we'll get these bones out of the way. So we can get the sidewalk built. And so a lot was just trashed. I think there are some that are still undiscovered. Um, I think that if you go to that lake over by Estalon State Park, and we're able to do some scuba diving archeology span at the bottom, you might some, find some fascinating things. And it's not called Aztelan State Park for no reason. Mm-hmm. It looks a hell of a lot like Aztlan in in Mexico, yes. Um, well, there's a pyramid, you know. Um, so some of the bones I believe we have in the ground under the sacred mounds, which is good. And obviously, the people to whom those mounds are sacred aren't wild about anybody digging them up, especially after everything that's, ha- that's happened. Um, I think some were disappeared by the Smithsonian. I'm not saying there's a vast ongoing conspiracy, but I'm saying in, a, in, in some occasions, I think there was an effort to keep these, we want to keep them, but we want to keep them out of sight. So that people who aren't quite as intelligent and sophisticated as us uh, don't get the wrong impression. Mm -hmm. And I I think some are held at institutions like that. Yes.
3: Do you think it would be kind of the the same argument about something like UFOs or alien existence now that it would just cause too much social chaos or it questions too many cultural and religious assumptions that it's just safer to not have it be public?
4: And that would oh absolutely, and that was even a more pronounced um, attitude hundred years ago, when I mean it's literally guys sitting around in the country club, you know, in the smoking jackets and everything, Mm -hmm. deciding what can be released and what can't. Um, I'm glad you touched on that because I really am of two minds on this when it comes to UFO disclosure, and. Part of me says, yeah, we've had our legs pulled so many times before. It's all BS. It's just a a PSYOP. The government doesn't know any more than we do. I understand that. And that's a valid point of view. But part of me kind of thinks they do. Okay. And that they're holding on and slowly warming us up for it. And I know the warming has been really slow. But every time we get something, a hint that, well, you know, there might have been life on Mars a long time ago, but there isn't now. We, we know for sure there isn't now. Well, we don't know that, you know, but I, I'll tell you before the pandemic, I was ready to pound on the table and say, I want disclosure. I want you SOBs and the government to tell us everything, you know, we're the American people, we have a right to know. Bring out the aliens! I want the alien bodies. I want the <laughs> crash ships
3: and the giants. While you're at it, yeah,
4: yes, I demand the truth.
3: And then the pandemic happened, and I
4: realized, geez, half people are going to attack the aliens if they see them and think they're demons. Mm-hmm.
3: So let <laughs> <a, laughs> you, you,
2: you don't want that to happen anymore.
4: No way. You know, <laughs> um, I follow some people that I don't agree with, but I just like to know what they're thinking.
3: Yeah, totally and, right.
4: <laughs> Yes, and there are a number of people on social media for whom who are diehard paranormal believers, but everything's Satan. Yeah, Bigfoot is Satan. Um, mm-hmm. ghosts, Satan. Uh, UFOs, Satan. Um, literally anything that isn't, yeah, you know, in the zoo, it, it, it um, the dog man, Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every, any, every, everything is demons. Yes. Yes, indeed. I swear if they, if they see a three-legged dog, it's the devil, you know, it, maybe it's just a dog, you know, um, but yes, there's very much that attitude. And unfortunately, that attitude predates the internet.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, when I was younger, I was involved with some fundamentalist religious people. And that's probably why I'm an agnostic now. Um, They they, they were quite a cast of characters. And I had a guy seriously tell me, a volunteer chaplain, as a matter of fact, tell me that, you know, they're putting movies out like E.T. to normalize the demons that come down and pretend to be aliens.
3: Oh, oh yeah, I've heard that. Uh Uh, (laughs) Childhood's end.
4: Yes, yes. And they, they want us to think they're aliens, but they're they're really they're really demons. And they want us to come, to, they want to come down here and have us accept them, and then they'll take over
2: so instead of a heart light, he's gonna eat your heart.
4: Yes, yes,
0: so that's,
3: that's
2: that's what's gonna happen. <laughs> that reminds me a little bit of like the satanic toys thing that they tried to get oh, going yeah. in the 80s, where they
4: Oh, yeah. I knew people who would not let their Kids play with Ninja Turtles because Ninja yeah. Turtles are what? of the devil, and it's like they're turtles who fight a crime with karate
3: weapons. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Maybe it's because they're named after Renaissance humanist painters. I don't. Yeah.
3: Oh, well, know you got really deep there, Adam.
2: <clears throat> or it could be that you're just crazy. They're <laughs> actually
3: <laughs> ascended hermetic masters.
2: <laughs> yes, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello.
4: But yes, there there are people who
3: totally
4: bought into that, and I I, why put that in the past tense. There are people today who, yeah, yeah, feel that way and see it everywhere. it,
3: It makes me think, though. I mean, if the phenomena really is as weird as people like us think it is, then you know, maybe it actually is kind of like that. In that they know something, but they really couldn't even explain enough of it to not actually disrupt society. I mean, because it's probably weirder than space aliens. And how are you even gonna release that type of information? How can you even be the the authority to disclose something like that?
4: I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Um there's something Terrence McKenna said that has stuck with me. And I'm paraphrasing but only a little bit.
3: Do you do a good impression?
4: <laughs> I'm not even gonna try okay, um, that's
2: just Joshua Cutchins wheelhouse we'll let him do that <laughs> Josh will probably be on in a few episodes anyway so we'll <laughs> and he does let, him do, his, yes. let him do <laughs> his <laughs> Terrence McKenna impression
4: <laughs> he gets it down but um, what he said was that I believe we're dealing with something that is portraying itself as an extraterrestrial invasion in order not to disturb us yeah and that was yeah dude oh man (laughs) Um, what if yeah what if they're coming as aliens because we define the aliens less scary than what they really are and wow you you really fully get that one it's like yeah yeah They, they may be handling us with you know kid gloves to not freak us out And that's, you know, I think that's, that's worth considering. And the whole disclosure thing, I just always keep in mind, they can only do it once press conference with the alien where they walk out and, and here he is, you know, or here it is. They can, that can only happen once. You don't get a reboot with that. You can't get, don't get a do over. Yeah. And the, the world reacts how it reacts. And I don't predict it reacts all that great, you know? And we don't know what their values might be. They might be radically different from ours. And we don't, and there's always the built-in when it comes to aliens, when it comes to extraterrestrials, there's always the built-in that this is something new. Much harder to, to accept would be, oh no, we've been here for a million years. We watched you guys evolve yeah we watched we assisted you guys in evolving you know that would be much harder to accept you know if they're brand new from alpha centauri that's one level of a lot to deal with but the idea that they've always been here and that we have interacted forever that's that's a lot and that's that would disrupt literally anybody including ourselves mental picture you know yeah, worldview you know
2: however i think just something that's far more likely i think in my opinion
4: oh absolutely we're,
2: we're much more dealing with something that is of this world just on a
4: different plane than we are yes uh and something ancient something that predates us i want i want to continue a little bit about
2: uh this guy joseph mahan that you met the some of this lost history stuff that you were talking about
4: oh yes That was, um, and that's one where I don't hold back on calling that a synchronicity. Um, The idea that I would happen to be at the Civil War Navy Museum, which he was the curator of, in the last year or so of his life. And apparently, you know, he was very, you know, active and, you know, um, walking and talking and, you know, giving his spiel. He, he was kind of a born professor. Mm-hmm. He he liked to talk and I was there to listen and he blew my mind. And that was a life-changing event. Um, at that time I, I was in the military. I was at Fort Benning and right, you know, across the street is the city of Columbus, Georgia. And, mm-hmm. My friend, we had nothing else to do that uh, weekend. So we went to this, this museum and it was basically empty. And then we were, the curator asks us, can we bring, help him carry in these artifacts that he has from his car? Well, sure. Yeah. And we start carrying in these weird looking stones and they're carved with things that look kind of like hieroglyphics. And I especially remember one that is has the body of a man and the head of a goat. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, wow, what is this stuff?
2: That's like a reverse pan.
4: Yes. Yes. As a matter <laughs> of fact, yes. <laughs> um, and I mean, some would compare it to Baphomet or, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things you could make out of it. And I'm like, what are these things? And he said, they come from a cave in Illinois. And I'm like, Illinois? Because I'm thinking they came from Egypt or something. And he says, yes, they were part of a worldwide system of shrines um, that existed you know, centuries and centuries ago. And he gives me about an hour of his view of hyperdiffusionism, the old world and the new world never really were old and new. They interacted way more than there's a historical record of. And there's lots of reasons for that, including, you know, especially that if you're Columbus, you want to discover something. You don't want to just show up at somebody else's place and like have to pay taxes and, you know, then leave. Um, To justify conquest, you had to act like these people have never seen civilization before. Instead of, they've been interacting with us for centuries and really there wasn't nearly as big a separation as people think. And there's when you get the, the cave that he found that stuff in, which I don't have on the tip of my tongue, it's in the podcast, but um, it's controversial. The guy who owned it was not what I would call you know, a person of great character, they're mostly interested in what can I get for these artifacts? Mm -hmm. Um, That, unfortunately, that's common enough not to be exclusive to fakery. You know, that doesn't mean they're fake. They They may be real. He just wanted to milk it for as much as he could as people in the art industry and the, you know, the antiquities trade do all the time, you know. But there was a cave where they found stuff that came from the Middle East, that came from Asia, um, that came from Europe. And Mahan had written multiple books on this subject and believed that there was a lost... worldwide system of shrines where you know people were in a spiritual system where you had to go and visit these shrines to gain like another initiation Mm -hmm. and i asked him well what religion was this and that's when he presented to me his 32nd degree mason's ring Oh, of and, course. Uh, and blew my mind again, yes. <laughs> and he said, uh, this, and I said, masonry? And because my granddad was a mason. And it seemed interesting, but it did not seem like, you know, uh, this Raiders of the Lost Ark level of, uh, what? <laughs> and he says, masonry is the remnants of that ancient religion that involved sun kings. And the sun kings were all around the world from Japan through Africa through Europe through Asia through what we call North and South America the religion was based on sun kings and the remnants of that the you know what are, the leftovers that are still able to be put together are esoteric freemasonry and wow that was that was a game changer for, for my way of thinking. Yes. So yeah, that, that that happened. And I got a lot out of that. And unfortunately, Dr. Mahan died the next year. And his Institute for the Study of American Cultures only went on for a limited number of years thereafter. But there's some fascinating materials there.
2: So nobody has carried this on, you don't think? or?
4: Nobody has carried it on as well as it should have been. Um, when you get into studying the, where he left off, and it's really like panning for gold because there's so many fakers and there's so many people with a political agenda. And there's so many just straight out weirdos in there. And I don't mean that in a good sense for once. Um, there are just some, some bad people involved with that these days. There are people who want to have a white supremacist angle to grind, which is ridiculous. That's the opposite of what Mahan was saying at all. Um, In fact, he believed that there were Africans in America way before Columbus and that trade had been worldwide, including China and Japan, way before Columbus. But there's people... Who have their own thing to find and there's people who want to make money off it and without picking on this particular group there are some Mormons who would like to just find stuff that backs up the book of Mormon oh yeah and so and that's like a big partisan struggle in anything you get in alternative history mm-hmm. you know it's just one of those things
2: Vincent do you know what part of Illinois these were in? Because uh, I'm wondering, if, I'm you know, I'm wondering if it's Southern Illinois because you know, I talked not long ago with Jason Andrews, Paranormal Patio Podcast, and we talked about some of this. He lives in that part of the uh, that part of Illinois, which incidentally is called Little Egypt, by the way, because you've got Ki- you've got oh, Chiro
4: I know exactly what he's them. talking about. Yes, yeah. And it does look a lot like Egypt. Yeah.
2: So I wonder if um, I wonder if this came from southern illinois i wonder if there's any way we could know whether what part of illinois it came from uh, well let's talk a little bit about some of this other stuff that you've you've talked about on the show uh one of the things you could, you talked about rebecca brown and the satanic conspiracy this is some good old-fashioned satanic panic stuff
4: oh yes she was a godmother of the satanic panic um and i heard her stuff <coughs> taught from the pulpit like it was the news like this was you know source verified you know material this really happened like there was no doubt at all and she was she was just completely full of it i mean it was just it was was just a lot of lies um she under a different name um was a doctor she had she had been a registered nurse and she became a doctor and then I don't know her life circumstances, but she went way off the rails and she began living with a patient and became fanatically religious and at the same time was prescribing her patients, including her roommate and her roommate's handicapped daughter. Um, huge amounts of uh, pain medicine. And this all eventually led to her being exposed publicly and losing her medical license. And she was lucky not to go to jail. Um, This was in a a pre-opioid epidemic world. Um, Today, I I think she probably would be incarcerated. Um, And she just left medicine behind And probably made a lot more money um, selling these lurid stories of demons behind every tree that were just ate up by people who really, really should have known better. And it was kind of, there's something I experienced being in fundamentalist churches, that there's a sort of what I might call holy lies that if a story fits what you want to believe there's very little critical thinking there's very little fact checking that goes on people just swallow it whole and that has had well some pretty huge political consequences um either that or Biden really wants to kill all your children and like turn over to the Chinese you know (laughs) <laughs> one of those, th- one of those things is true. <laughs> yeah, um,
3: one
2: of those. It's either A or B. Yes,
4: yes. <laughs> um, and just the biggest nonsense can be pitched out there, and as long as it's coming from a person who shares your views and you know fits the narrative that you're already comfortable with, then it doesn't get questioned, and that's a huge mistake. Um, oh, don't we, don't we know it?
2: We, yes, <laughs> I see it every day now. It's just, it's absurd, especially down here.
4: Oh yeah. And, and she took that to a level that I don't think too many people had taken it to prior to that. She doesn't get, she was never as well known as say Oral Roberts, you know, or Pat, um, Pat Robertson. Um, but she had a, bizarro ministry that um, basically everything and when I say this it sounds like an exaggeration but it's not literally anything you touch can be demonic and you can have demons sticking to you if you and she literally said if you go to a thrift shop and get a piece of clothing it could mm-hmm. put you in contact with demons.
2: Right. Because you don't know who was wearing it before and what, and what they, they were, did, if they were conjuring Beelzebub
4: and yeah. it's like a contagion. Yes. yes. And anything that has, I mean, I, I remember some, somebody had something that had a image of a geisha girl on it. And I don't mean like a, a pornographic one, just like a, a picture, you know, of the traditional garbed Japanese lady. And that was an opening for a demon and like anything and her and jack chick were canned in glove Mm. and jack chick i'm assuming doesn't need much introduction
2: for anybody that's not familiar with jack chick um jack chick was this really arch fundamentalist uh cartoonist and he wrote these little things called chick tracks and there's these little comic books they're kind of like rectangular little comic books and their whole purpose is to be left at like, you know, public restrooms or just anywhere for people, to, for, for kids to read. And he was also virulently anti-Catholic. Oh, yeah. Anti, Anti-Freemason and anti, you know, all, all the, all the stuff, all of the above, hits. but very anti-Catholic. And actually my favorite, uh. My favorite title of a Jack Chick tract was the Death Cookie, which I was almost about, knew you
4: were going to say that. Yeah,
2: which was about the communion wafer. That's like that's the, that's the best. Like that should be a band name, just Death Cookie. Well, I know <laughs> if, if someone's listening, you want to form a metal band or some shit. Just Death Cookie.
4: <laughs> My favorite was Trick, um, which is yeah. one they don't publicly distribute anymore but you can still get them from their website if you want them. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, the website, you can find all of them. You can at least at least you, you used to be able to. You can you can read every single Chick tract and they are hilarious. Well, they would be hilarious if they just weren't so, so damn serious. You know, like he he was 100% serious.
4: Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and what I liked about Trick was it starts out with this ridiculous lie this total, absolute lie that every year emergency rooms all around the country are packed full of children who are suffering from poisoned Halloween candy. Oh, right, right. It's like, no, that doesn't happen. That literally does not happen. Okay. That's another thing from the satanic panic
2: era was the poison Halloween candy. Yeah. Yes.
4: And emergency rooms are full. And it's like, Wait, if that happened even once, do you think we'd do it next year? Come on. You yeah, know? Yeah. The FBI did a study of, and I don't have a citation, but it's easily look Googleable. Um, the FBI did a study a number of years ago about poisoned Halloween candy. And they found that in a 20 year period, 20 children had died of poisoned Halloween candy. So it's one per year on average. Of those 20, 18 had been poisoned by their parents. So it's like something that's just right almost doesn't exist. Right. you know? right. And it, right. he was just doing his thing. But again, people bought that and believed it. Yeah. And it was a holy lie. It was something that fit the narrative you already believe. So instead of looking up, gee, I didn't hear any kids around here dying of Halloween candy. Like Nobody questioned it. Nobody fact-checked it. And people oh, you can't go out there. You'll like, get he die of Halloween candy. And even though that really almost never ever happens, it's it, it continues to exist in urban legend, you know? And yeah, Rebecca Brown worked hand in glove with Jack chick on her first two books, um, which are, he came to set the captives free and prepare for war. And that's a subtle title. Yes. Yes. Right. And She had just these wild, off-the-wall stories. At some point, she's confronted by a werewolf. Um, She, like, astral traveling people break into her house and, like, are beating her up and destroying her stuff. Um, Just crazy things. Her Elaine, her patient, who she also is helping get away from demons um, says that she was at one point, the, she was literally a bride of Satan. And right. of course she met with people at the Vatican and, you know, with all the government big wigs and they're all in on this together. And kind of the point of the podcast I did there was that the whole QAnon universe, the idea that the entire world could be run by Satanists and not even like we kind of, those of us who are listening to this and talking about this kind of understand what Satanism actually means, but this is the like comic book version of Satanists and that they literally run the whole world and eat children. And she came up with that way before it caught on, but she kind of laid the foundation for all that. And after the first two books, Jack Chick refused to work with her anymore. Wow. <laughs> he,
2: she was too extreme for Jack Chick.
4: <laughs> yes. You've burned some bridges when you're that far out there. But her books, her books are available now. Her ministry continues. Uh, she's under the name Yoder. I'm sorry. I have to take that back. Her husband continues the ministry. She did, um, she did die a year or two ago. Of natural causes at an older age, did a lot of damage. Yeah,
2: she reminds me a little bit of Sherry
4: Shriner. Oh I'm yeah, with uh-huh. Yeah, I would say the only the big difference is, I think Sherry Shriner believed the crap that she was saying. I don't really think Rebecca Brown believed a lot of that stuff. I think she found a really good marketing system, and was really yeah. making a lot of money. Um, her books have sold millions and her ministry was going. Um, and it's the kind of ministry we're expected to donate a lot of money. So it was yeah. I I just I'm not saying she didn't believe any of it, but she believed it in a way that was very prosperous for her. You know. Sherry Schreiner, I think, was just crazy. She that's it, a different story. Go ahead.
2: Definitely I think she found her niche. But you're right. I mean, all this stuff with the, with QAnon and all this right now, it's 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 recycled again and again and again.
4: Yes, yes. Why well, I, I remember hearing that Xerox machines are all based on six six six. So I don't know <laughs> if you copy something, what it belongs to the devil. I don't. I don't even know what that means. Or they they already have the UPC code things for when we all have to get the number of the beast, and they can just scan it on your hand and. I heard all that stuff back in the early 90s yeah that you know? was all yeah yeah right none of this is new you know.
2: barcode technology was the number of the beast and all that yes right. yes i remember people were saying that ronald reagan was the antichrist because each of his names had six letters ronald wilson reagan people were serious about this stuff and yeah, oh, yeah oh yes that's and that's- i don't know if you remember eighty eight reasons why the world will end in nineteen eighty eight that, that sounds another- vaguely
4: familiar yeah um I do remember reading nineteen ninety four question mark a hugely popular book at the time by harold camping yeah and and he
2: camping's got a good repu- reputation he's he's been right so many times
4: <laughs> holding at absolute zero but yes and yeah. It's funny to me, funny, not, you know, it it is what it is, but it's odd to me that he did put, in case I'm wrong, it's going to be 2012. In case it's not 1994, that Christ returns, which, spoiler alert, yeah, if he did, they covered it up. (laughs) Some
2: people think we're in an alternate reality because they turned on CERN at some time around 2012,
4: so that's probably what happened.
2: Let's talk about your thoughts on the whole Mothman thing.
4: You had a different kind of interesting take on this. I do. And hey, I never thought I'd get a chance to talk about this publicly. (laughs) That's very nice. I mean, other than the podcast I put out. Um, Yes. I think now I am not denying anyone else's experience. If you had an experience, I would never tell you you didn't. Okay. But I do look at, I try to keep be open-minded and look at other possibilities. There, there's an image of Mothman, and that's of a humanoid, broad-shouldered, like stocky humanoid with no head and two big red eyes and then these big wings behind it. And he takes off, and he flies, but he doesn't fly by flapping these huge wings, which begs the question, well, why do you have wings if you don't need them to fly? You know, you can just sort of levitate straight up. What are these wings for? It doesn't seem like a biological creature in the least. Okay, it doesn't to me. Um, what it does seem like, is if you're a person minding their own business in the woods at night, you come across this, this is what you'd see, but what it might really be would be an army soldier with a helmet on and a bunch of gear strapped to his body. And when I was in the service, we did this thing Mm -hmm. where if we're out at night ops, we'd put red lenses over our flashlights and hook a flashlight onto the strap that holds what we call 7.82 gear. It holds up your canteens and ammo pouches and all your gear. You have this like suspenders and they have a place to hook a flashlight on there. So people, so you can see and so other people can see you and it's, you know, it's safety and it's convenience and, but they're red. And if you look at a paratrooper, if you came around a corner and suddenly there's this person standing there and it's a paratrooper with all his gear on and a helmet and two red flashlights and behind him billowing out like wings are his parachute that he just landed on or otherwise the jetpacks are real okay i'm um, just Drop that. Jetpacks are totally real. They exist. They're a thing. And they're not new. They've been around since the 50s and 60s. And the U.S. military tested them. And they tried to get a jetpack that would work for a single infantryman to be able to fly in the enemy territory and land and fight. And they never considered it to be safe, at least what we're told. They never considered it to be safe enough. And so they discontinued it back around 1960, but that may or may not be completely true, but they definitely test that that's open source that's out there. And there was a story in soldier of fortune magazine, which, you know, Hey, it is what it is, but it does publish some true things that have happened. And in there, some, former paratroopers said that they had been the cause of the mothman phenomena that they had been sent to West Virginia to test during Vietnam, to test a certain type of paint for painting targets. And they'd also done high altitude, low opening parachute maneuvers practice. And that to me it's an alternative explanation for the mothman Hmm. that if you saw that it would scare the hell out of me. I mean, you're just out doing your thing. And there's this person, it's like a person, but it's got this billowing wings. It has no apparent head, which if you're wearing a parachute and all your gear and a helmet, definitely gives you an impression of not having a head when you have the two red flashlights at shoulder height, you know, on your body. If you just see that for a moment, it'd be really easy to see pretty much what's described as a mothman. That would also explain the presence of foreign agents um, in the area. And I've speculated that some of the men in black weren't you know ultraterrestrials or something they were foreign intelligence agents who were looking into whatever the military was doing in the Point Pleasant area at, at that time which may have been something and Keel kind of hinted at this in the mothman prophecy so he didn't really follow up. He just said that there were military, there's a military scandal that would get everybody in trouble if they knew about it, but he just kind of, it's a one-off. He just mentions it and moves on to other stuff. And I do remember him saying that in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And I really wish he would have elaborated on that, but that wasn't what he was looking for. That wasn't his focus. And I've just wondered if, if you came over from rural Russia or Bulgaria, maybe you would not eat Jello. you know? Maybe they sent you over here to find out what's going on, because you're the guy that they've taught to speak English, but you don't speak it like an American would. And you know, Jello. I don't think they had Jello in the Soviet Union. You know, you're looking like what the hell is this? You know, and you you may have acted odd and looked odd, not supernaturally weird, but just off. Well, that's the way that a poorly trained inexperienced spy would act you know
2: so the jetpack idea i mean it's interesting um there is i mean i was i was actually talking to a friend today about this and about how the mothman actually paced the car that was going like 60 miles per hour do you think that the jetpacks could have gone that speed
4: if i had to guess and it is an educated guess i would say yes absolutely i mean right. they're rockets I, I don't yeah. think they'd have any trouble pacing a car.
2: And they would have been able to control this stuff pretty effectively and it not just be, it not just be random?
4: That's where I'm speculating. Yeah. But it's, it's educated speculation that you would have to combine the jetpack for liftoff and you know propulsion with a glider-type wings for control and that would look just exactly like what the mothman is described as wings that don't flap and yeah. an ability to go straight up an ability to fly along and these big not you know not a bird wing not an insect wing but a sort of an artificial wing and i don't know that technology exists i don't know I know things like that were definitely worked on. You know, many things are tested and then found not to work out. And do I think that's possible? Yeah, I absolutely think that's possible. And what were, what were they doing there? Were they just testing, you know, um, I think it was like ultraviolet paint and high-altitude, low-opening parachutes. They could have been testing a lot of things. I mean, the the secrecy, especially this is during the Vietnam War, and this is, you know, pre-Watergate, this is at a level where a lot of times the public just wasn't told anything. You know, this is before anybody knew about so much government malfeasance. That's something that was relatively harmless because I don't honestly believe there was a Direct connection. I don't believe there's any connection. Now, other people can show why there was. I'm not, you know, being too contentious. There could have been. But I don't really believe there was a connection between the Silver Bridge collapse and the appearance of the monster.
2: No, I don't think so either. And I think that that comes primarily from the movie. Yes. Kill never really made that connection. I think when the movie is written, which, you know, I mean, I've I've had Richard Haddam on the show a few times. And I mean, I don't think that I think that that was just a device that was
4: used for the film. And, and even in Kill's book, and that's not to cast aspersions, man, that's one of the best books of my life. But it wraps up the story. Right. It does. It because, can't just go on forever. Yeah.
2: yeah. Essentially. I mean, essentially kill left after that yeah Um, i think he does make some kind of tangential connection that like this look this is a really weird year and it culminates in this bridge collapsing but he doesn't really say oh this is because of the mothman or you know i think that that's something that just got into the popular culture i mean he writes about i mean as you know I mean, he writes about a lot of other weird stuff that's going on in, a, in, I mean, Long Island. I mean he writes about almost as much about Long Island in the book as he does about, uh, as he does about West Virginia.
4: His Mountain Misery" section is, to me, more yeah. interesting than some other stuff, but yeah. Um, and exactly. There, I, so the, the fact, or the supposition that the military might have been doing. Some advanced testing there really rings true to me, and even the the, the other phenomena that swirl around there, the people getting strange phone calls—they're all numbers. Um, yeah. The, you guys have undoubtedly heard of the number stations, right? Oh yeah.
3: Oh yeah. I've I've caught them live while listening to shortwave radio. Do they still broadcast today? Uh, there's still Cuban ones. Uh, the Cuban lady is still on there.
2: We got weird number numbers station like interrupting our show now. I don't really know
4: what's going on with that. Cool. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, and, and they were. That was kind of like you know the the heyday of number stations. Yeah. And and that to me, you know, could be the experience that causes somebody to think. Hey, I've been, you know, hearing these weird numbers, this weird thing happens to me, um, without, you know, imputing any of the, the witnesses, you know, there's a, once you talk about something and you see it through a certain lens, everything kind of tends to build on what you already think. And, you know, the Mothman like kind of legend kind of grows from things that might have other explanations and that's you know i just keep trying to keep an open mind with it um you know it's it's a it's an industry in that little town and i would never knock that um i love the hodag that lives in uh northern wisconsin um but i I don't think the hodag was necessarily a real uh creature that was caught by the the settlers but um do you guys Ever hear of the Hodag? I've never heard I've heard of the
2: Hodag. I th- I think I probably have heard either I uh, no, I've heard you talk about it. Uh but I have I've uh maybe Josh cutchen has mentioned it once or twice cuz I know I know Josh used to go to school up in, in Wisconsin. It,
4: it's in Rhinelander, uh Far Northern Far Northern Wisconsin. Um a lot a lot of good Germans up there. Oh yes, yes.
3: The Hodag. <laughs> <laughs> they,
4: <laughs> I live nearby uh, a town called New Berlin, so there's that, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a suburb of Milwaukee, yes. Um, but they found the settlers found a dinosaur about a hundred years ago, and it produced quite the, the stir, you know, and they still have the local sports team is named the hodags, and they have like a little museum up there and they do egg stuff, but everybody kind of admitted that okay, the egg was was a hoax. Um you know it was done to generate interest in Rhinelander. Um, so I, I I'm not against that stuff. That, that that's cool. But um and I'm not putting that in the same level as a Mothman that's total they're two totally different things. But I just think there we should be open to all possibilities, and they're misinterpretation and other things going on and you know i just like Kill said belief is the enemy i don't want to um be a diehard for for anything you know that's that's not the 14 spirit you know right so yeah i just i just saw some stuff there that it could very easily be collection of different things that coalesced into the idea of it's this one thing but even in the book I like the way Keel talked about other stuff even better than the the creature itself you know
2: right yeah it makes sense that's interesting I mean it's an interesting idea uh, for sure and the time we got left here let's talk a little bit about one of the true crime cases that you talk about and uh, that's the Lane Bryant massacre
4: Oh, yes. And that's one that I have a definite opinion on. I have gone so far as to contact the police department in charge of investigating that, which still keeps a... It's an open case. Um, It is one of the extremely rare unsolved mass shootings. Um, Mass shootings tend to end with the shooter killed or captured on, or dead by his own hand on the scene. Um, also, it's one that happened in a woman's clothing store. For those not familiar, Lane Bryant is a chain of stores, still very much around, that cater to plus-size women. And this one in, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a suburb of Chicago, I believe called Burlington um but it's a, it's in chicago land and a person came in and shot several people all of whom died except a employee who was shot in the neck who lay there and pretended to be dead until the shooter left when i heard about this i thought they're going to have this guy which they were describing as a guy uh, a man They're going to have this guy within days. You cannot get away with something that big. But it has never been solved, and there's never even been an arrest. There's never even been a named person of interest. There is nothing. Um, Which, you know, I read up on it and did what research I could do. And I feel that they have been looking in the wrong direction literally from day one. I believe that a, a woman did the Lane Bryant massacre. I just find that way more believable than any scenario where this unknown man comes in. It doesn't seem to be a robbery and it doesn't seem to be personally motivated in the sense that he was somebody's significant other or something like that. They back they, they, Searched the backgrounds of everybody who was shot and found nothing. And the picture that the composite drawing and that was put together, and that was recently, I say like last year, re-released, doesn't to me look like a man. It looks like a woman. Um, you know, and I, I don't want to insult anybody, but not a woman I would find attractive, but guess what? You know, she's still a woman. Okay. And if you've never been looking for a woman, you've only been looking for guys, then you're not going to find the killer. And I absolutely believe that's one I do. I'd be stunned if this is ever solved in it's a guy. I just don't buy that.
2: You think they're going down the wrong path on this for a long time?
4: Yes, the entire time. They've only looked for a man and they base that in part on, there's an audio recording of the killer's voice. Mm -hmm. But what I heard there was a woman. Okay. A very angry woman, but a woman. Um, There's also DNA from a coffee cup that has been like made into the Holy Grail of this case. That's male DNA. But to me the fact that somebody had a some man had a cup of coffee at some point doesn't really prove anything um i definitely i believe it was a woman i believe that she had some she was deeply upset with lane bryant um somebody that worked there maybe the place in general mm-hmm. maybe somebody insulted her um there could There could be a number of motives, but she shot that place up and has so far gotten away with it because they've never looked at her. And that would be that would be my supposition. Do you think
2: that they just decided that this was a man because this is a typical male type of crime?
4: Yes, and absolutely. This,
2: this kind of idea that women would never actually ever shoot any place up. Oh, yes. Which I mean is something that I would think would be exceedingly rare because every time you hear about this type of things it is it is men that perpetrate these, but it doesn't necessarily have to be.
4: Exactly. Over it's overwhelmingly a male crime, but that doesn't mean there isn't that 1%
1: that isn't,
4: yeah, you know. Right. I don't know if this rings any bells, but have you ever heard of the song? Um, I don't like Mondays, by the boomtown rats.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know. I know exactly where you're going here, but I'll let yes. you
4: know. Yeah. Back in the days before there were school shootings and the way we think of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a world where that really didn't exist. A few years after I graduated high school, it totally, it was, it was it was a huge deal. But I remember growing up and just, that wasn't the thing. Same here. Same here. Yeah. Back in the seventies, there was a school shooting and it was by a girl. And it eventually was, you know, this band made a song about it called, I don't like Mondays yep. after her explanation of the police asked, why did you do this? And I don't like Mondays.
2: That's what she said. This was in San Diego, I think, in 1978 or 1979. She was like 14 or 15 years old. Yeah. And she grabbed her father's gun or rifle and just... She lived across the street from the school. And she shot into the the crowd at the school and killed some children there. Oh, yeah. It was a terrible crime. It was
4: just such a crazy one-off that, you know, there was no you know, there there was not, it wasn't, it wasn't a copycat crime and yeah. it just kind of came out of nowhere. And I kind of think that, yeah, the the Lane Bryant massacre was somewhat like that, that, you know, it's atypical, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There is an
2: alternative theory in that case, though, oh, please. that that uh, some people think that she was covering for her father. I don't necessarily buy that because I think she would have come out and said it by now. Um, huh.
4: That is in, now we're talking in the, in the San in Diego the 70s. Case. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah. That, that That is she, really bizarre. Wow. Yeah, that
2: he actually did it and she covered for him, but there's a whole documentary that's about this that I saw on prime that they talked about. The, it's like an independently made documentary and they talked about her case that is fast. You wouldn't happen
4: to know the title of it, would you? Uh,
2: no, but I'll look it up for you. Okay, oh, thanks. Because uh, that is, I think it actually might be just called "I Don't Like Mondays."
4: Okay, um, it would seem so hard to pull that off. You know, to, to cover that up. I mean, people would seem to, but I. Hey, I don't know. I won't discount it until I've at least heard something about it. You know? <laughs> wow, that is really wild. Yeah, it's
2: it's uh it's definitely bizarre. In fact, whenever I was listening to your Lane Bryant episode. I actually thought about that too, because that's the, that's the only one that I can think of that was like actually perpetrated by a female.
4: There is one other that comes to mind. And that was, I believe in the eighties when the phrase going postal became a thing, right? Because there were several workplace shootings by postal workers. One was by a woman. I don't have a name on, on that, but uh, it's really super rare, but it does happen. And yes, when it hangs there unsolved for this long and nobody there's a reward, there's, you know, the, the police haven't blown this off. That's the biggest crime that ever happened in that municipality. And they've really, you know, tried to solve it. But if you're only looking over here you're not going to see what's over there, you know,
2: looking in the wrong place. Right.
4: Yes. Yes. From day one,
2: the, uh, the person that survived, they were the ones that did the composite sketch. Yes. And has anybody ever asked them whether they thought it was a male or female
4: that I don't know. Um, I truly do not know. (laughs) I mentioned this idea on Reddit and, you know, it was I won't say I was driven off, but it didn't it wasn't as well received as I would have liked. Um there wasn't a lot of people people weren't hearing that, you know. So I, I don't know um whether that's ever been questioned.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It might be something that never really gets uh gets solved.
4: And and that's very true too. Others other than a deathbed confession, yeah. Um I just don't see that one getting solved anytime soon, or perhaps somebody who's her longtime partner turns her in maybe after she's died or something. I could mm-hmm. see that as being a solution, but not much else. I don't see, um, you know, crack police work suddenly breaking this wide open. I not after this long. I, I just,
2: yeah. Cause it was 2008.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah which is a long time to have gotten away with something that serious. You know, I still see, you know, it's a shocking crime, you know, and and apparently in any sane way, motiveless, you know, there's not, you know, there's not some big till you're going to get at a a, a clothing store in early in the morning, you know, that's just not going to happen like that. Yeah
2: well Vincent, this has been uh very interesting I'm, I'm glad to have had you on the show we're gonna uh, continue on the patreon side though and we're gonna talk about uh the Nacida, wisconsin marion apparition and some a couple other things but uh tell people where they can find uh your podcast the okay. weird part
4: hey, first of all hey thanks for having me i've had a great time here guys absolutely
2: um, hey thanks for coming on
4: i can be found on facebook um I can My podcast, The Weird Part with Vincent Treewell, can be found wherever you find, find podcasts. And I have a less organized than it should be, but still effective website at vincenttreewell.wordpress.com. Um, that's probably the easiest ways. I am also on Patreon. I am not currently charging people but that's probably going to change in a little while if I can get a little more productive here. Okay. But yes, uh, that's, that's where you can find me. All
2: right. Well, excellent. And uh, guys, of course you can find us conspire Um And we have our Patreon, which uh, Sergio can tell you how to find that. You can find that at patreon.com slash And uh, we noticed that we do have people dissing our Patreon still have not figured it out, why this is happening but uh, certain people have been just like interrupting our show and talking bad about us and I've complained to our hosting platform but so far nothing's been done so I really don't know what's going on but we're trying to get to the bottom of that but uh, if you want to join we've got the $5, $10 and the $20 level so and don't listen to those guys that are trying to tell us that we're evil and and all that stuff right?
3: Right. (laughs)
2: All right, guys, thanks so much for uh, for joining us uh, next week. Uh, we're going to be doing a Paranoid Styles. And uh, I want to thank Vincent Trewell for uh, being on the show tonight. And we'll see you next time on Conspiranormal.
1: Please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com conspiranormal, or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com, and please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast.